Our gracious God and Heavenly Father, as we come before you, even as those who call you uh, Father, as those who are your children by faith in the Lord Jesus, uh, we come to you with the sober realization that we are still sinful, uh, and sometimes unbelievably so. Uh, we come to you now asking that you reveal to us the state of our hearts and our lives, uh, that your word will be a mirror uh, into our lives as we look into the lives of Israel, uh, especially Judah and Jerusalem, and to be able to see in them the same problems, the same sinfulness that we see in ourselves. Uh, and in being able to see how sinful we are and to see how deserving we are of your judgment, uh, we ready ourselves to fully appreciate your word of grace, uh, your work of purifying judgment, uh, the sending of your Son, our Lord Jesus Christ. Uh, in, and in hope uh, of the gospel we cling on to. We thank you that this uh, very serious book of Isaiah prepares us uh, for the gift that you have for us. And in these few weeks, where we hear such strong words of judgment in the first half of Isaiah, we pray that you help our ears to be open, our hearts to be soft, to see your assessment of us, and come to appreciate even more just how gracious and merciful you are. For we pray all this in Jesus' name. Amen. Now for those of you who were here last week, it was a pretty full-on sermon, uh, an overview of uh, Isaiah, along with all the history and kind of the context. And I don't blame you if you were a bit lost, uh, but hopefully you know, you'll catch on as the weeks go by. Now this is a quick recap. We went through three things, didn't we? Context of this book, the content of this book, and the audience of this book. And just so very quickly, the context is in verse 1, isn't it? It's in the time of these four kings, Uzziah, Jotham, Ahaz, and Hezekiah, in the 8th century, going to the 7th century BC. So that's like 2,700 years ago, in a time where uh, Judah, who is the main content of this uh, uh, vision, which is in this little jelly bean-shaped nation here, and this capital city, Jerusalem, is at the center of the action. And they're being squeezed, right? Being caught up in a battle of empires, the Game of Thrones, Uh, previously it was Egypt coming up, then it's Assyria coming down, and later on Babylon, coming from the east, uh, will also come and mess around with this tiny nation of Judah. And we saw that from a human perspective, uh, Judah is caught up in geopolitical machinations, right? War. But from a divine perspective, we see that it's an act of God's judgment on hundreds and hundreds of years of rebellion of God's people one of God's kings, both of the northern kingdom, Israel, which is up here, as well as the southern kingdom, Judah, who were supposed to be the faithful people, uh, but weren't. And so we, we get into this uh, vision of Isaiah, and, and we hear that the vision concerns Judah and Jerusalem. Uh, but because, uh, it concern, uh, and because, because the God of Judah and Jerusalem is the God of the whole world, Uh, we see that the message that was given to Judah and Jerusalem also concerns the whole world. The message of judgment isn't just reserved for Judah and Jerusalem, but we start there. It will also go to a message of judgment for the nations around in in light of or to prepare us for the hope, not just for Judah and Jerusalem, but the hope for all nations. And we're going to get through this judgment kind of theme in the first half of the book before we look into this great hope that we see as, as the book uh, progresses to the end. And that's why the audience, 
as we see in verse 2, isn't just for Judah and Jerusalem, but Isaiah begins with this word from God, Hear, O heavens and O earth. Right? It's a message for the entire world, not just 2,700 years ago, but today and forevermore. Now, as we get into chapter 1 today, uh, chapter 1 is right at the beginning, uh, and chapter 1 to 5 kind of provides for us this sit rep, right? situation report, status report uh, of God's people. Okay? Chapter 1 to 5 is kind of this background information. In a way, it's a bit like uh, the American State of the Union, right? Uh, that's not it. State of the Union. Everyone kind of familiar with that? It's kind of uh, the national report card uh, given once a year by the President of the United States of America. Uh, and, of course, it's focused in the State of the Union. It's kind of the economic status uh, of, of, of America. Uh, and, and also, the President reveals his plans, right, for the coming year. So it's an assessment of where the nation is at but it's also a plan right, for the coming year. Now, it's a bit like that uh, in, in, in these chapters. It's, it's kind of a report card for the nation. Uh, and instead of the union, it's broadcast across all the major U.S. networks and, and radio stations and, and online news sites, right? So that the entire nation can listen in on this report card and listen in on the, on the president's plans for the coming year. It's a bit like that, except that this report card is grander than any state of the union. Okay? It's a state of the nation, of God's people, the center of the universe. But it's more intimate than that as well. It, it's, a bit, it's a bit like a family meeting. You know, anyone here have been in families where your, your parents, your dad or mom calls a family meeting right, to discuss where the family's at? Maybe it's been a period of days or weeks where there's been a lot of yelling uh, and a lot of crying and a lot of tension within the home. And... and and it's family meeting time, right? To be able to chat things through, to be able to find out where things are at, why things are going so wrong in this family, and to propose ways forward. So it's grand, like the State of the Union, because it concerns the whole nation, but it's also intimate, like a father calling his children around him to talk about how the family is so messed up and what they can do about that. So what is the state of the nation? What is things like in God's family. Have a look from verse 2. Have a look from verse 2. God says, Children have I reared and brought up, but they have rebelled against me. The ox knows its owner and the donkey its master's crib, but Israel does not know. My people do not understand. Ah, sinful nation, a people laden with iniquity, offspring of evildoers, children who deal corruptly. They have forsaken the Lord. They have despised the Holy One of Israel. They are utterly estranged. Now, this family is utterly dysfunctional, isn't it? And as you look at what the father says, it's the children who are entirely to blame. You look at these children, right? They're children, children of God, mind you, who disown and despise and don't want anything to do with their father. Now, as a parent... And there are a lot of parents in this service. Uh, I don't know, nothing riles me up more than seeing really rebellious and rude children. It just gets me, right? Really rebellious and rude children. And, and sometimes I can understand why. Maybe they come from a broken home or their parents are very neglectful. But when I look at their parents, and, and from what I can tell, they, they, are, they parent as best as they can. It makes no sense to me how these children can be so rude and so rebellious to, to parents who seem to obviously love and care for them and nurture them. 
It makes so little sense why a child would treat their parents this way. It's even worse when it comes to God the Father and the children, His people. It makes even less sense. It makes no sense at all. But the God of Israel had been nothing but perfect, nothing but perfect as parents to these adopted children. Now, as we go back to the history of Israel, we realize that they are nobodies. They are really no ones and nobodies in this world. Deuteronomy 7 says, For you are a people holy to the Lord your God. The Lord your God has chosen you to be a people for his treasured possession out of all the peoples who are on the face of the earth. It was not because you were more in number than any other people that the Lord set his love on you and chose you, for you were the fewest of all peoples. But it is because the Lord loves you and is keeping the oath that he swore to your fathers that the Lord has brought you out with a mighty hand and redeemed you from the house of slavery from the hand of Pharaoh, king of Egypt. When when God called his people out of Egypt, he explained to them why he did it. And it wasn't because they were awesome. It wasn't because they were a great nation. It wasn't because they had special abilities and great qualities. Yet God chose them. Purely by grace, he set his love on them, giving them life-changing and world-changing promises. Right? He, he rescued them out of slavery of, uh, uh, in Egypt, and he revealed himself to them right, on Mount Sinai and told them even his personal name. You know, when you see the, the, the word Lord there, you know, all these capital L-O-R-Ds, uh, it's just the English way of describing God's personal name, which has kind of the English alphabets Y-H-W-H, right, which is why we say Yahweh. Right? Yahweh is God's personal name. It means I am who I am, and I will be who I will be. Right? He's a self-existent, uh, the self-referential one, the only unique person, being in the world. That's his personal name, Yahweh. Such intimacy in drawing people and revealing his personal name to this nation Israel. He brought them to the promised land every step of the way, providing signs and wonders to show them who what kind of God he is, all-powerful, the king of heaven and earth, without peer, he was with them. And all they had to do was to keep trusting and honoring God as God. All they had to do was to be respectful and obedient to them, uh, to, to God, their father, as obedient children. In a way, it was no more than you'd expect, right? It's just the right thing to do, isn't it? It's common sense that is how you treat a loving parent. Now, as Isaiah puts it in verse 3, it's in very nature for an ox to know its owner, for a donkey to know its master's home. Right? Animals know who provides for it, who looks after it, who shelters it. It's just common sense. But the children of God do not have any common sense. And the way God's saying, you guys are worse than animals who know their owner. You, the children of Yahweh, do not know your father. Now, it's those created in God's image, those given rationality, right, and high-level thinking. They couldn't realize, they couldn't figure out that God really loved them and, and they really should have been obedient to God. They didn't want to know God. They wanted to rebel instead. They wanted to be nothing like their heavenly father. And so as we read in verse 4, they choose rather than, than being children of God to be offspring of sin, children of corruption. They chose 
to be unfaithful to Yahweh, who had so intimately drawn them to himself. They chose to be unholy to the Holy One of Israel, being just like the world around them, being corrupt and sinful. In this, we see kind of the heart of sin in this passage. It isn't about wrong behaviors and about wrong actions. It's about relationship with God. Right? It's about relationship with God. That's what the heart of sin is. It's treating God as if He isn't your heavenly Father at every moment of every day of your life. Sin is about living life your own way. Sin isn't just being angry and violent against God. It can just be a, a neutral kind of uh, don't careness, right? Or the, the, the Hokkien word is so much better, isn't it? Botap. Okay? Sorry, I got a, the tongue for botap is just, uh, you can't explain it. It's just, huh, whatever, don't care, right? Indifference. Okay, thank you. But botap sounds better, right? Okay, you're going to learn, okay? So I mean, Singlishes, we have a, a lot of Singaporeans here. Botap is just a word you're going to think, right? We just botap God, okay? In our day to day life. You don't have to be angry or violent against God. You just have to act like He doesn't exist. You just have to not consider God much at all. You just have to ignore His authority in your day-to-day life. You can still be a very good person. You can follow Christian principles in the way that you live. But if your heart isn't directed towards God in your day-to-day life, it's an ignoring of God as your Father. If you make very little effort to know God, to know His Word, to know His character, to know His ways, to know His will... It's this lack of desire to be intimate with your Father in heaven. It's, it's not wanting really to pray. Right? A, a cursory prayer before a meal. Right? Praying so that you can get to sleep at night. How many of us you know, get to bed and want to pray within 30 seconds? It's the best sleeping pill, isn't it? To pray in bed. Yeah, some of you laugh because it's true, right? How many of us are this kind of children of God? Children of God who really just disown and despise God by ignoring Him. Now, the Old Testament children of God were like that, and they simply wouldn't change their ways. And they simply wouldn't respond to God's discipline. By walking away from the Almighty God, they forsook the only one who protected this tiny little jelly bean nation in the middle of this war of nations. The only thing that was protecting, the only one that was protecting was God. And by forsaking God... They did great harm to themselves, didn't they? Now, God was like a loving parent, allowing his children to learn things the hard way. And so God let Judah face the consequence of their rejection. He left them alone. And they were destroyed, weren't they? They were slowly, slowly being eaten away. Right? It's, a, it's a beautiful imagery kind of here in, uh, in this um, verse 8 here. Right? The daughter of Zion is left like a booth in a vineyard, like a lodge in a cucumber field, like a besieged city. Right? It's not like a lodge, like a holiday lodge right? at Mulaney, right? <clears throat> These are, 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 are descriptions of, of, of being temporary, of being unprotected, of being in danger. That's the kind of destruction that they were facing, but they wouldn't learn. They wouldn't learn their lesson. And Isaiah asked, why? Why won't you learn? Why keep rebelling? And why keep being struck down? Why keep having your life spiral out of control? Why keep having bad relationships? Why keep selling your soul to work and to your passions and to your sins and facing the guilt and the destruction in yourself and the hurt of others, your family, your friends? 
Why will you not change? God asks his children. And then God has to give the verdict that they are sick to the core, from head to toe, from head to heart. They are sick and they are stubborn. And destruction has come upon them. The foreign powers have overrun their country. Their cities smolder and ruin. The nation is almost no more. And they will not learn. And on and on it will go for another few more decades before they're finally exiled to Babylon. And the question is asked, isn't it, in God's word, what what would it take to make God's children wake up from their self-destructive sinfulness? What would it take for us to really wake up and, and repent and change our ways? How much self-harm and self-destruction needs to happen before God's children realize how sinful we are in order that we might turn to God and seek His help and seek His restoration? How much do we have to be let go before we will come back? How much hard ways do we have to face? As a parent, that's a very apt question to ask, isn't it, of our children But our Father in heaven asks every one of us that question. How much sinfulness has to happen? How much brokenness before we will turn back to God? Now, then we get to verse 9, and it's quite a a surprising verse to read. It's the first of so, so many interjections of surprising hope throughout Isaiah. Even in this judgment section of chapter 1 to 36, 39, there's all these interjections of hope. Well, we're told that only by God's grace have Israel, have Judah and Jerusalem not faced total destruction like the famous or the infamous cities of Sodom and Gomorrah. Right, Sodom and Gomorrah is kind of uh, uh, Genesis time, right? Completely corrupt, sinful cities were destroyed completely. Right? God compares the current Judah to this godless cities of Judah, Sodom and Gomorrah who were destroyed. But it's only by God's grace that they still stand. They're not quite destroyed yet. Now, as we read on in Isaiah, we'll continue to see this pattern, right? a long exposition of judgment punctuated with messages of unexpected hope. And we've got to keep asking, right? How is it possible that such a sinful people as these children of God can have hope? Right? How is it possible right, that a just God of heaven and earth will be able to let these sinful people get off scot-free? What would have to happen for that to happen? How is it possible that the godless nations, as God turns his judgment onto, from his people to the nations, you ask, how can the nations have any hope of being with God? How can these hopes come true? Now, as we press on in Isaiah's vision, we will know and it will blow us away. We know the answer because we're New Testament Christians, but as we build up to it, the hope that we can have will blow us away. But we come back to verse 10 to continue on this state of the union, this family meeting where God now shines a spotlight on their religious life. Uh, verse 11. Okay, let's start going with verse 11. What to me is the multitude of your sacrifices, says the Lord. I've had enough of burnt offerings of rams and the fat of well-fed beasts. I do not delight in the blood of bulls or of lambs or of goats. When you come to appear before me, who has required of you this trampling of my courts? Bring no more vain offerings. Incense is an abomination to me. New moon and Sabbath and the calling of convocations, I cannot endure iniquity and solemn assembly. Your new moons and your appointed feasts, my soul hates. They have become a burden to me. I am weary of bearing them. When you spread out your hands, I will hide my eyes from you. Even though you make many prayers, I will not listen. 
your hands are full of blood. Well, there's no need for us to go line by line. It's all revealing the same problem, isn't it? There's an utter religious hypocrisy happening among the people of God. Right? Their worship is vacuous, it's empty, it's hevel, right? that word that we hear in Ecclesiastes. And God doesn't accept any of it. Not their sacrifices, not their frequent temple attendance, not their observance of holy days and Sabbaths. God won't even look at them and He won't hear their prayers. Right? These are the children of God, but God doesn't want any of it. It's a shocking thing to say, isn't it? What God is saying is that for children of God, like us, your coming here today could mean absolutely nothing to God. You know that Bible that you so proudly carry around and open every day? The prayers that you say, the grace that you give before meals, coming for Easter services and Christmas services, putting your money in the bag, sharing in communion together, Not only might all those things mean absolutely nothing to God, Isaiah says they may be hateful to God. Let us think in. Every single thing that we do as Christians, all our religious acts, they may in fact be hateful to God if they do not come from a heart of true worship. If they do not come from a heart of true worship. Look at what? True worship looks like in verse 16 and 17. Well, what is this worship that the Lord requires that these religious practices are meant to to be a part of, to be an expression of? Verse 16, wash yourselves. Make yourselves clean. Remove the evil of your deeds from before my eyes. Cease to do evil. Learn to do good. Seek justice. Correct oppression. Bring justice to the fatherless. Plead the widow's cause. If I could paraphrase Isaiah, true worship is to be holy like God is holy. It is to live righteously and with justice, just as God is a God of justice. It is to be holy like God and to be righteous like God. That is what it means to offer true worship. Now, how is Judah going with this? And and how are we going with this? Now, before we we get to find out what God thinks about how the people are going in their lives of of holiness and justice, we get another interjection of hope and grace. It's an amazing passage to find in in the middle of this condemnation, really, of his people. Now, in this family meeting, Yahweh calls his rebellious children together and reasons with them. You can kind of picture it, right? Come gather children Let me say to you, let me reason with you, let me convince you that though your sins are like scarlet, they will be as white as snow. Though they are red like crimson, they shall become like wool. If you are willing and obedient, you shall eat the good of the land. But if you refuse and rebel, you shall be eaten by the sword, for the mouth of the Lord has spoken. Now many of us know these verses. They're some of the most beautiful verses about the purifying work of God, about cleansing and restoration. Right? They make it onto postcards and, 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 and bookmarks, right? And screensavers. It's a beautiful passage. It's the father inviting his children to be cleansed from their sins. To be able to turn this blood stain, brokenness, 
to be washed, to become white as snow. It's beautiful imagery. But it's also a warning there, isn't it? If you refuse and you continue to rebel, that destruction, self-destruction and God's judgment will continue and it will get worse and all will be lost one day. What will the children do? Will they continue to refuse and rebel? Before we even have to ask the question, we already know the answer, don't we? For God dies straight back in. God dies straight back in to this indictment of his people in verse 21. You see, they acted all holy at the temple, but out in society, they were as, as unholy as everyone else, right? Monday to Saturday, they were just like the unjust society that they lived in, even though on Sundays, they act all holy and righteous. The people of the city of God should have been holy and righteous like God, their Father. They should have been loving. They should have been faithful. They should have been honest and wholesome. They should have been wise. They should have had leaders who, who, who led and ruled with justice. They should have cared for those in need. God has a great care for those who need, the, the widows, uh, the fatherless. A city that bears God's name, Jerusalem, should have been like their father, God. But we're told that the faithful city has become so unfaithful that God calls them a whore. I'm not sure when's the last time you used that word, right? It's very vulgar, isn't it? Uh, maybe the modern people would call it ho, which is kind of vulgar to me. That's my surname, right? So don't anyhow say ho. I have a non-Christian friend, the coach of my daughter's netball team, who every week calls me, here comes the hole. And then she sneakers under her breath. Uh, you can pray for her. I'm meeting out with her for like dinner and her family next week. But it's offensive. Because a whore is someone who has no faithfulness, who sells herself to anyone who would buy. And that's what Israel have become. So unfaithful that Isaiah has to use such a vulgar word. For in them, for that city, the love that they're supposed to have became hurt and harm for others. The precious things like silver and beautiful alcohol became corrupted and diluted. Their rulers became rebels. They're supposed to serve other people faithfully, but they turn inwards to self-service and self-gratification. Those most in need of care, they're oppressed and harmed and made use of. Now, as Christians, we readily point the finger at our world out there and call out the sins in our society, don't we? Uh, as Christians, we turn on the news and we look at the world and we shake our heads. It's, it's just full of murder and, 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 and violence. It dominates our headlines. It's not just the violence. We also see cheating and lying and corruption at every level of human society. Right? Turn on the news any day at 6 o'clock and you watch it. And for some reason, it's, it's, I guess it's the news that we that expresses what humans are like. Violence, crime, corruption. And care for the weak and the marginalized. Australia ought to hang her shape, uh, her head in shame, isn't it? Absolute shame in the way that we treat refugees, in the way that we treat, uh, and the way that we want to spend less and less right, on foreign aid. Such a rich country in this world, and our budget is something like 0.4% of it goes to foreign aid, and they want it to be less than that. So easy to point our fingers at the problems out there in our society. But what about us? Is the big bad world the same as the big bad church? 
Are we any different? How are we going with being loving in our day-to-day lives? I think we think about it, we are often no different in being hateful and in our speech and attitudes towards people that we don't like. We backbite and we slander and we gossip like the best of them in our workplaces and in our school. We murder in our hearts every day. Jesus said, if you think of someone as a fool, as being stupid, if you look down on someone and think of them as nothing, you've in fact murdered them in your heart. And we do that all the time. We have family members that we strongly dislike and we wish didn't exist. Same with colleagues and classmates. We have enemies. How much corruption do we blissfully allow ourselves to engage in? We're happy to pirate and to steal and to cheat to get our way, to get an advantage. Our studying, our business practices, our tax returns. Many of us will take questionable, even illegal steps if we can get away with it to be able to get ahead in life. And then what about social concern and social justice? Now, I, think, I find that Christians are at two extremes. Some focus on social justice so exclusively to the neglect of gospel preaching. And other extreme is those who focus entirely on gospel preaching to the neglect of social concern. Now, firstly, it's so clear as we go through Scripture that gospel preaching is key, right? It's kingdom work. It will last into eternity. Never give up gospel work. But sometimes we have this either-or approach to gospel work and social care, social concern, social justice. It's not either-or, it's both-and, right? In fact, how we express our, our gospel preaching and our gospel living has to be seen in the way that we care for those in need. Now, how are we going as a church? Are we, a one, we are one of those churches, I think, we are on the extreme, where we, we are really gospel people, and, and, and that's great. I never ever want to discourage us from being gospel preaching, gospel living kind of church. But I think we are a church which is guilty of often neglecting to look around to see our world and what it's like and to see what part we can play in alleviating the suffering and the poverty and the injustices in our world. You know, we are a rich and influential people in many, many ways. Right? Well, you know that I like pulling out all the stats about how rich we are. We have so many resources to give. Yes, to gospel work, but also resources to be able to give to social concerns. We can surely find a way to develop a greater social consciousness about what is going on in our neighborhood, in our city, in our world, to be able to see and understand the needs of the oppressed all around us. Surely we can contribute in some meaningful way, some practical way to help. Perhaps there's a refugee in your neighborhood. Perhaps there's a a domestic worker a few doors down your corridor, who is being abused. Perhaps there is a widower struggling in our community that we can provide help for. Do some research. Right? Is there more ethical companies you can support that, doesn't, that pay terrible wages and engage in child labor? That's not too difficult. A quick Google search can figure out whether I should buy from Uniqlo or H&M. Right? One has a better social concern rating than the other. Perhaps, you know, research things like IJM, International Justice Ministries, and we'll highlight them. We support them as a church, IJM, who's trying to solve poverty by dealing with the upper echelons of society, governments and authorities. And they're doing an amazing work, transformative work, that our church is very proud to support, and we're not going to let you know more about that. But I want you to be able to have a consciousness about caring for those in need. See, the faithless city of Jerusalem is held up as a mirror for us, 
to check up on ourselves and to ask, are we really any different? Are we any different? Now, as you expect, God responds to Jerusalem's rebelliousness and religious hypocrisy and societal sins with judgment. We fully expect judgment to fall. Verse 24. Therefore the Lord declares, the Lord of hosts, the mighty one of Israel, Ah, I will get relief from my enemies and avenge myself on my foes. I will turn my hand against you and will smelt away your dross as with lye and remove all your alloy. And I will restore your judges as at the first and your counselors as at the beginning. Afterward you shall be called the city of righteousness, the, the faithful city. Zion shall be redeemed by justice and those in her who repent by righteousness. But rebels and sinners shall be broken together, and those who forsake the Lord shall be consumed. Yahweh God says, I will turn my hand against you. Right? God is poised to strike, and you think and you expect that it will be a fatal blow. I am going to cut you off, right? After this family meeting is over, I'm going to sign the papers and disown you as my children forever. You'd expect that, right? Given the sins of the people. That will be just. Such rejection of, of the Father, the Creator, the Holy One would have been just. But what does God, what does God do? What kind of judgment is God bringing on His people? Right, the key word here is smelt. Right? I will smelt away your dross as with lie. I will smelt away the alloys. Now, not all of us here are into science. Let me explain what smelting is. Right, smelting is the process of extracting out from metal ore, right, the crude metal ore, the stone, to draw out the precious materials by burning away all the impure things, right? all the alloys and all the, the, the soil and all the other muck that's part of this ore. Smelting is to burn it so, so much that it separates out so that you get the good stuff, right? the silver, the gold, or whatever it is. It's a beautiful description of God's fiery judgment that seeks not to destroy completely but seeks to destroy in order to purify. Right? To destroy in order to purify, not destroy completely. That's the amazing thing about God's judgment on His children. is to restore what is good. It's to restore this sinful, unfaithful city to make them into a city of righteousness and uh, justice through this smelting process of judgment. And the outcome is beautiful, isn't it? The outcome is beautiful. A city that became so empty of worship, so faithless, will become a worshipping city, a faithful city, a pure city, a righteous city. And he will do it by justice and by righteousness. Right? He will restore justice and he will do it rightly. God will seem to be just in the way he goes about this. He will provide all that is necessary to fulfill his righteous requirements of judgment in order to restore this city. And that sounds familiar, isn't it? That God is the just and justifier of the one who has faith. It reminds us of Romans, right? But we're not quite there yet, right? There's a lot more judgment to come before we fully engage in the hope of salvation. But it's there so clearly. At the same time, we're told that as much as God is the one who will purify his people, there is a response that is needed. And that grace has an expiry date. God won't tolerate rebellion among his children, among anyone forever. Now, as we listen in to this uh, God state of the union, as we listen in to this uh, family meeting that God has with Judah, 
we realize that we're not just onlookers, right? We're in the family. We're inside this story. God is asking us to reflect as to whether these indictments on Judah appeal, uh, 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 are applicable to us as well. They apply to us as well. And it, it begs us to ask the question, like, well, why is it that the children of God are often nothing like their Holy Father? Why is it that the children of God are often nothing like what they're supposed to be? Why is it that we insist on estranging ourselves from God and looking nothing like Him? How can it be that we can know God through the gospel and still despise Him by the way that we don't even think about Him? That we so easily follow the ways of the world, that we are so unrepentant of our sin, that we care so little for the things that God cares about, that we don't read His Word with any joy or, or, or anticipation, that we don't pray except to give a cursory prayer for our food. Isaiah's indictment 2,700 years ago is an indictment on us. I think all of us are guilty in some way, shape, or form as being faithless children of God. And, and it prepares us to be able to see that judgment is deserved. And in the next few weeks, as we look more and more into judgment, part of the big point of all this is not to quickly jump into the, the, the solution, the comfort of the gospel. We'll get there. It's to spend time just reflecting on our sinfulness. It's to spend time really being able to see how corrupt we really are and all that we maybe appreciate that God's judgment has fallen on Jesus, a purifying judgment that makes us pure and righteous children of God again. It's to prepare us for that. So before we move on too quickly to clinging on to the gospel, and I still would encourage you to do that, I want to spend some time just reflecting on the realization of our utter sinfulness before God. And the more we do that, the more we will cling to hope, the more we will trust in Jesus. Let's pray. Oh, Heavenly Father, Lord God Almighty, even as we declare who you are to us, we realize just how far short we have fallen as your children. As we reflect on your holiness and your ways and your words and your will for us, so clearly revealed to us in your word, we realize how far short we have fallen. It's not just pagan sinners and it's not just the corrupt world around us that deserve your judgment. As we reflect upon our own lives, our own attitudes towards you, the way we treat you in our day-to-day lives, in the way that our our worship is sometimes so full of hypocrisy and and is so utterly empty. As we reflect on how we live in the world and we are not lovers of good, that we are not lovers of purity, that we so easily grasp onto corruption and cheating and lying, that we so easily want to hurt other people and be unloving, that we so often neglect to care for those in need around us. We come to realize that we are in need of your grace We are in need of your purification. We are in need of your salvation, just like everybody else. And we thank you that your word always contains for us either hints or strong declarations of the grace that you have for us, the hope that we can cling on to because you're a God who wants to judge not in order to destroy, but in order to purify and save. 
And so, Father, as we go through these weeks, hearing your judgment upon us, help that sink in, in order that we might all the more appreciate your grace and mercy. Pray all this in Jesus' name.